Well, as we just saw, this missionary or anti-missionary journey that Jonah goes on, it's probably one of the most famous Bible stories around, isn't it? It's, the one, that we, it's one of the ones we tell to our kids when they're little, um, like Daniel in the lion's den or Joseph and his multicolored coat. We tell these stories to our kids to, to, to start to get them used to the Bible. I think it captures our imagination, doesn't it? I don't know if it's the fish or if it's the storm or the runaway prophet that captures our imagination, but something does. And as we saw earlier, none of them are the point. The point is God's love and mercy towards his world. And in this first part of Jonah this morning, we're going to see that God's grace and love to his world is sovereign. That is when God wants something to happen, it's going to happen. You can't run away from God. And so this passage, it starts the same as nearly every other prophecy in the Bible. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. That's pretty normal, isn't it, for for prophecy? Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Again, still pretty normal. God's got a prophet, he's got a job to do, he he tells him where to go. But at this point, this story goes seriously off script, doesn't it? But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Jonah heads to port, he jumps on a boat for Spain, pays his fare and heads off. That is not how a prophecy is meant to go, is it? That is not what we expect a prophet to do. Jonah has legged it in the wrong direction. Instead of heading eastward, which is inland towards Nineveh, he's heading to the coast and he sets off westward to set sail to the other end of the known world in Spain. There's a map that hopefully will appear behind me and you'll be able to see on that that Nineveh is about 500 miles northeast inland. So his home is the the dot on this side, up there is, is Nineveh. He's meant to head inland across the desert. Instead of that, he's going to head all the way across there on a boat. That's his plan, all the way to southern Spain to sun it up and do whatever they did in southern Spain in those days. He probably wouldn't have been surrounded by Brits like he would today. Why is Jonah so keen to get away from Nineveh that he would run that far? I was going to make a joke about how spineless the Australian cricket team are there, but that doesn't really work anymore because you started winning again. But Jonah's pretty spineless, isn't he? That's what we think. But I think the problem is we read this and we don't understand the problem with the assignment. I mean, it's a prophet's job to go and tell people to repent, isn't it? But this assignment is a little unusual. There's three reasons why it's unusual. The first is political. You see, Jonah was from the northern kingdom of Israel. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire next door. And the Assyrian Empire was the dreaded enemy of Israel. And they weren't just any old enemy. They were terrifyingly inhumane. They did unspeakable things to their enemies. And they were looming large as a threat on Israel's doorstep. They were that bad that some historians have referred to them as a terrorist state. They were like the ISIS of their day and they are looming over Israel, threatening to take over the kingdom. It's a pretty good reason not to want to go, isn't it? But not just that politically. It was unusual because a few prophets had spoken out against Nineveh and other foreign countries before Jonah, but they always did it from the safety of their own country. They kind of stood inside and shouted over, Oi, Nineveh! Behave yourself. But they were safe, surrounded by their own army. 
Jonah was the first to be called to go into that foreign country and go and preach against them on their own street. And Jonah, well, he was fiercely patriotic. We see later in verse 9, Jonah defines himself primarily by his nationality, not his religion. He's a Hebrew first. He worships God second. To Jonah, Israel were God's chosen people, and everyone else, well, they can just stay out. He'd forgotten the call that God had made to Israel to take the good news of God to the people around them. Ahead of that was the security and nation of his nation. And I think he does all of this because he hasn't fully grasped the enormity of God's grace that has been shown to him. But now God calls this fiercely nationalistic prophet and he tells him to go and preach in the territory of the people that he most hates and fears. The second issue is theological. Uh, Nahum, most people think, had already prophesied that Nineveh and Assyria would fall due to God's judgment on them. So why would God ask Jonah to then go and to Nineveh and offer them the chance of repenting and being saved? Wouldn't that undermine God's promises that he'd already made, that they would be destroyed? And he wouldn't be sent to offer the chance of repentance if there wasn't a chance that God would actually allow them to repent and be saved. So to Jonah, this Instruction not only made no sense politically, but it didn't make any sense theologically either. And finally, the third reason why he wouldn't want to go, it was practical. Jonah was being asked to go to a big city full of people with a really nasty reputation of violence to outsiders and stand there on his own and tell them to stop being such naughty boys. As Tim Keller helpfully illustrates, it'd be like asking a Jewish rabbi in 1940s to go and stand on the streets of Nazi Germany and tell them to behave themselves. You wouldn't do it, would you? It's not likely to end well. But the thing is, while on the surface all these seem like really good objections for Jonah as to why he might not go, there is one underlying issue in Jonah. Jonah hasn't understood that he too is God's enemy. Jonah hasn't understood that there is no us and them when it comes to God's people and God's mercy. It wasn't a new idea. King David had grasped this many years before. He wrote in the Psalms, and this is from Psalm 14, verse 2. Uh, sorry, Psalm, yeah, Psalm 14, verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. What Jonah needs to understand, and this is the journey that we see him on throughout the whole of the book of Jonah, is that he too needs to keep throwing himself on God's grace. He too needs to understand that he's just as guilty as his worst enemy. He too needs to understand that he's just as in need of God's love and mercy. Jonah needs to truly understand that if he can willingly take the good news of God's love out to his enemies. And friends, if we're running away from God, we need to understand the same thing, don't we? That we too are in need of God's mercy. That we too are in need of God's love. And that we too are guilty as the people around us who don't know God. Well, that's Jonah's problem right now. That doesn't get dealt with until chapter 2. But for now, what we find is Jonah out on the sea, in a boat, manned by foreign sailors, running away from God, because he just can't understand why God would ask him to do what he's been asked to do. 
And I reckon Jonah would have been looking over his shoulder, worried a little bit about what's going to happen next. So I think he knows deep down and he learns the hard way very soon. You can't run away from God, can you? God is sovereign and when God wants you to do something, you're going to do it one way or another. If God wanted to send Jonah to show grace to the people of Nineveh, guess what? He'll send Jonah to show grace to the people of Nineveh. So as he's out on this boat, we see this storm whip up around them. And I think we lose some of the drama in verse 4. The ESV uses a different word. It says God, God hurls a great wind upon the sea. It's like throwing a javelin at the boat. He throws this wind at them. And the storm is so sudden and so fierce that the boat threatens to break apart. And we know it's an unusual storm because these are experienced sailors and they are fearing for their lives and they know it's no ordinary storm. They're hurling the cargo over the side in desperation and they're crying out to their own gods for mercy. And where do we find Jonah in all of this? Asleep down in the belly of the boat. And in his sleep, Jonah hears a voice calling out to him. And you know what? It's the very same Hebrew words as he heard from God in verse 1 at the start of this sentence. Arise. Call. That's how God starts the call to him in verse 1. And that's what he hears now in his half-asleep state. Arise, Jonah. Call. So you probably know the feeling. When you're half-asleep and someone wakes you up and starts talking to you, and you're a little bit confusing, aren't you? You're a bit confused, aren't you, at that point? I remember Christmas morning... Last Christmas, I thought I'd been really clever. I thought, I've got it all sorted. I don't know how I'm going to get my kids to, to get up in time, get dressed for church, and then we can do their presents and we can get out to church on time. I didn't tell them they've got to get dressed before they can open their presents. Well, sure enough, on Christmas morning, I hear the voice of a child who shall remain nameless, apart from it's obvious it's a boy and he can talk, so that gives it away. Um, and he says to me, Dad, I'm dressed can you help me do up the buttons on my shirt so I can open my presents, please? So I sit up. I start talking to them. I start buttoning up the buttons on their shirts. And it took a couple of minutes for my brain to catch up and tell the rest of my body it was still pitch black outside and I should probably check my watch. Credit where credit's due. This child followed the instructions to the letter. It was 3.15 in the morning. I hadn't told him it had to be light outside when he got dressed. Well, similarly, Jonah, I think, is coming round at this point. He's not quite with it. And he hears this voice, arise, call. And I reckon he's sitting there perhaps thinking, this is God's voice. God's come to me with a new message. Maybe God's come to his senses and he's got a better mission for me. But he, as he opens his eyes, he sees right in his face, not a child on Christmas morning, but he sees a foreign sailor saying God's words at his face, Arise, Jonah, call. Only instead of this prophet arising and going to foreigners to call on on God, this same prophet is now being told by foreigner, Arise, call on God. The irony in this situation for Jonah, the embarrassment and the rebuke he must have felt hearing those words from a foreign sailor. And so these men figure out that Jonah is the cause of the storm, that Jonah's sin has put them all in danger. And in verse 8, they quiz him to find out where he comes from. And you notice the order they ask him, you know, who are you? And then at the end, they get to, where do you come from? 
And even here, he defines himself and he answers the last question first. I am a Hebrew and I worship God. At least he acknowledges that he worships God at last, the maker of sea and dry land. I mean, in his anti-missionary journey, Jonah has finally proclaimed the truth about God, albeit very reluctantly. And I think despite Jonah's pretty poor attempts at evangelism to this point, possibly to his surprise as well, the Jonah's actually acknowledge that Yahweh can steal the sea and ask what they, what they should do. I think that's really encouraging, isn't it? Jonah's done such a rubbish job of evangelism so far, and yet God uses him at this point to convert the sailors. That should be really encouraging to all of us who find it hard to talk to people about Jesus. Well, Jonah accepts his fate. He tells them, throw me overboard. And he thinks that's to certain death. But the sailors, well, no, they're the bigger, better men. They're not going to just kill him to get out of this situation. They row back to shore. They try to. But God's not relenting. God makes the storm fiercer and fiercer and fiercer until they have to give up their efforts and they stop trying. And so we have this scene with a boat full of foreign sailors calling out to Yahweh using his personal covenant name, showing a true fear of God, a true conversion to belief in him. And they beg Yahweh for mercy for throwing Jonah overboard. They hurl him in the sea, and it immediately becomes calm. And what's their response? Their response is to fear Yahweh, to offer sacrifice to him, to make vows to him. And in an ironic twist, the prophet who did not want to take the good news of God's love to foreigners, so ran away. Well, this very prophet ends up taking the good news of God to foreigners who come to accept God as their God. And as for the prophet... Well, at this point, we don't know what's happened to him. So what are we to take from this unusual story? Well, did you notice the sailors, they make vows and sacrifices to Yahweh after the danger has passed. They don't do it beforehand. They're not converted in attempts to be saved, to try and win God's favor. They are converted by seeing how God has saved them after the fact. Their vows and sacrifice are a response to being saved rather than in the hope of being saved. Jesus speaks of Jonah in Matthew 12, 41, and he tells the people of his time that he is greater than Jonah. That means Jonah points us forward to Jesus. He's what we call a type representing what is to come in Jesus. Because in this passage, Jonah takes on the punishment for God's anger for sin in order to save the sailors. Of course, the big difference in this case is God's anger was justified because Jonah was the cause of the sin in the first place. Well, friends, Jesus is greater than Jonah because he takes on the punishment for God's anger too. But instead, this time, it's not for his sin. He takes on God's anger for the sin of the whole world instead. And in doing so, just like Jonah saves the sailors, Jesus saves all of us. Because Jesus is the ultimate example of God's sovereign love and grace towards each and every one of us. From this story, we see our sin has a cost too, don't we? This cost is ultimately worn by Jesus. Even while we were still enemies of God, he reached out with his love and mercy to us. That sovereign love and mercy of God in action. We see it in Jonah's sacrifice to the sea and we see it more clearly in Jesus' will in death and resurrection so that he can take God's anger on himself so that we can be restored to right relationship with him. And friends, if you're here this morning and you don't know the love of God and the mercy of God for yourself, friends, look to the cross of Jesus. 
See how much God loves you so much that even while you were still rejecting him, he chose to die for you than live without you. That's the depth of the love and the mercy of God shown towards you. And whether you know God's love or mercy already, or maybe you've heard it for the first time today, all of our response should be the same to our loving, merciful God as that of the foreign sailors. We are called to worship God, to fear him, to give him our lives as a living sacrifice by living our lives in gratitude for his love and his mercy shown to us on the cross.